Not authorized by any other candidate or committee. America's PAC527.com. KDAL weather update. I'm meteorologist Peter Kafkowskis with CBS 3 Duluth. Your forecast for today of partly cloudy skies overhead. Temperatures climb into the 60s and 70s by the lake, 80s and 90s further inland. Three overnight hours tonight, temperatures fall back into the 50s. And for our day on Wednesday, with scattered showers and storms overhead, temperatures climb back into the mid and upper 70s. For CBS 3, I'm Peter Kavikowskis for 610 AM and FM 103.9 KDAL. Uh, southeast wind about 18 miles an hour with fog. Uh, airport temp now at 55, 45 downtown, 44 in Superior. Twin City is already at uh, 83 degrees with partly cloudy skies. Hibbing reports some fog this morning, 63. Hayward is fog, 70. Also 70 at Solon Springs with a cloudy sky. And Two Harbors has fog and mist with 55. Again, Airport 55, 45 downtown, 44 in Superior. Green Thumbs Rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. The WLFSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. And away we go with the Bob Olin Show here on a Tuesday. Good morning, Bob. Uh-oh. Do we lose Bob again? I am here. Oh, yes. you are there. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thought we lost, lost you. for a little while there, but uh, you, got, you brought me back, so that's All good, right. Dave. Good. Well, we do have a caller on the line already. You want to take a call quick? Well, we may as well start things off that way. That'd All be right. just fine. Okay, okay go ahead. John, John from Baltic City, Bob. Last fall, I picked up all my weeds in the garden. This spring, there was no weeds, very few weeds. This spring, I picked up whatever I lost last fall. Now it's all green with little tiny, like pinhead green things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they definitely sound like they're annual weeds. You've been doing a good job. You know, we always recommend that you try to prevent any of the, the, those weeds from going to seed. And you were doing that, is that correct? Yep, I did. There was no flowers last fall or this spring before a rototilt. Now it's just like green. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, uh, it could well be you did rototilt. Uh, a lot of these weed seeds, believe it or not, can sit dormant for a long period of time, particularly that real dry spell we had. When you came along and we rototilled them up, I mean, they can be dormant for 10 years down there, 15 years maybe. We Sometimes we bring them up to the surface, and then uh, all the moisture, and I'm assuming in Bawalik you've had pretty good rain recently. Is that correct? Yep, lots of rain. Yep, lots of rain. Lots of rain, yeah. I really think that that seed had been sitting there all that time. I don't think it's anything you did last fall. I think it's seed that was sitting there. We brought it up to the surface, and then with the abundance of rain, uh, you're getting it to germinate. Now, the good news is it should all be just annual weeds. So as soon as it dries down just a little bit, if you get in there and shallow cultivate, either with, if you want to use your rototiller, you could do that, but you want to be very careful and not uh, bring up any more. So you'd want that set at about inch and a half, two inches, and just uh, hit them before they get a chance to get the roots established. So we call that in the white root stage. And you can see as it kicks them up to the surface, the, the white roots will lay on the surface, hot like this, full sunshine, and that kills them. 
So I think at this point, shallow shallow cultivation, whether you're going to do it with a hole or you're going to do it mechanically, uh, that'd be the way to do it. And you want to do that as soon as possible before those roots have a chance to get established. You know, I got all my garden planted already, and uh, I just go up to the hole and, and dig up all, you know, just to cultivate, not to cultivate, but to aerate, aerate the garden. Yeah, okay, everything's in. Well, you do want to get in there between yeah. the rows. You got things planted yep. in rows, I'm assuming? Everything, yep. Yeah, okay, get in. They have uh, something called a shuttle hole, which has kind of a loop down at the bottom, and that's just designed for very shallow cultivation, not doing a lot of digging. So scrape the surface. Yep half an inch, three quarters of an inch, and just knocking them all back. But uh, you're absolutely right. I think I'd get after them. We're seeing this. We're seeing some weeds emerge that we didn't have in the past, and it's just a response to uh, tilling and then bringing seed up, and then this amount of moisture that's been very conducive to germinating. Some of that seed could have been lying uh, dormant for a long, long time. A lot of this seed needs exposure to light, so it gets down in the, uh, in the soil profile, and it just sits there. And uh, then uh, we bring it up to the surface, and the light is there for exposure. There's light that penetrates down to about a half, three-quarter of an inch. And then we get the moisture on top of that, and those combinations uh, may have generated weed seed that that, uh, was lying at a lower level uh, for a number of years. I think that's probably what's happened there. Okay, Bob, thanks a lot. Your show is very good. I listen to it every Tuesday. (laughs) Fantastic. We appreciate that. I was just... uh, up in your neck of the woods last night, had a meeting with some of our folks up in the Ely area. They have a nice uh, community project that they're working on. Up them out just a little bit. So uh, mm-hmm. that part of the St. Louis County looks real good. Lush, lush green creeks are really full. So you've had plenty of moisture. That's probably what germinated all your weed seed for you. How about that? Yeah, the weeds are certainly having a field day with this kind of weather as, as well as any other plants, I suppose. Well, that's the problem, and it's the one thing I'm personally facing, too. i got to get after them in a hurry, because once they get established, and it was very conducive in some areas. So some areas, it's surprising this time of year, we get uh, plenty of moisture in one area, and a quarter mile away, it doesn't rain. So we get those kinds of uh, interrupted moisture levels, but certainly if we've had moisture that's been continuous, and that's the thing, we've had a number of calls and questions from people about uh, the failure of seed to germinate. Usually, if it's quality seed, it can be a couple of two things. If you uh, got in too early, and a lot of people would rather not use the treated seed, and I'll use sweet corn, the pink sweet corn. Obviously, that's a fungicide uh, that they're treated with. And actually, there was, I'm trying to remember the name of the company in the Twin Cities, Gustafson, I believe it was, that they actually invented some of the equipment for treating seed. And actually, when it goes in early without a treatment, uh, in a cool spring like this, and I see this on several occasions this year, uh, the fungi in the soil will actually rot the seed off. And I had that question from someone just yesterday. And I think right now, uh, even though it's a little later, get in there and reseed at this particular time. So we saw that. And if you have irregular moisture on shallow seed, it's challenging to seed uh, beets and carrots and sometimes lettuce and other things because uh, it, in that upper quarter of an inch, you're putting them in quarter, three inch of an inch deep. And uh, that can dry down very quickly, so we get enough moisture for the seed just to crack, as the term we use, start to germinate. And then uh, seed cracks, and then it all of a sudden dries out, and that upper quarter of an inch, even though there's plenty of moisture down below, that upper quarter of an inch can, can get dry very quickly. And uh, then the, the seedling is actually killed. 
This can actually be the case also with uh, a grass seed. Grass seed's a very fine seed. It gets raked in the surface. It, it doesn't get uh, under that soil made more than an eighth or quarter of an inch. It's fine as long as you keep that seed bed moist or if you cover it with some kind of an organic material. Mm-hmm. That's why we'll use a chopped straw. Commercially, they use a lot of uh, paper cellulose products to cover that seed to keep the seed bed moist. It has to stay moist for uh, about two weeks. The same thing is probably going to be true with carrots. I would say two weeks is a good time that you're going to have to think about keeping those uh, seed beds moist so you get germination prior to that seed bed uh, uh, drying out and the seed being uh, destroyed in the process. So uh, there's some seeding issues this time of year, uh, but w- w- the weeds don't seem to be having this kind of a problem. They seem to be seeding out and uh, uh, germinating very readily, Dave. All right. Well, uh, you probably got everything planted at this point, right, Bob? Well, we're still putting some things in, <laughs> still oh. coming in with some transplants, so I, I don't want people to get discouraged. I know a lot of people got off to a late start with a cool mm-hmm. me had. You can continue to plant, uh, so go ahead and don't get discouraged. If you had an area that didn't come up, didn't germinate, replant, and with the moisture, things should take off quickly for you. Yeah, we're past the uh, 10th of June now, so hopefully uh, we're out of the frost season, right? We're out of the frost zone right <laughs> now, so that's good news. And actually, we didn't have that early frost that we've had over the last couple of right. years, but person doesn't really know, so if you got in, got early, you got lucky this year, you should be in good shape. We're off to a Good start on the green season, Dave. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, record low for this date is 35, and that was in 1958. So it never did oh. get below freezing, even record territory. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah when we get to about, uh, by June 10th, according to all of the records that go mm-hmm. back, we have about a 99% chance of being cross-free. And that was uh, last Friday, actually. So we're good to go from this point on. All right, we'll take a break, Bob. Back uh, soon with more of the Bob Olin Show, 925 now at KDAL. All right, Bob, we are back, and we got another caller on the line. Good morning. This is Pat, right? Yes. Yes, I'm Good calling. Morning, Pat. I'm, I'm calling to see if we can uh, dump expired whey protein powders into our compost bin without ruining the compost that's Ooh, uh, forming. Um, it expires, you know, and um, I'm wondering if you can use that. In the compost. In the compost, I actually think it would be fine. It's going to be very fine, and it will will compress and compact a little bit, correct? There's, like, you know, chocolate and strawberry and, you know, different flavors, but I'm wondering it would be a protein that's going into the compost. Absolutely. Okay. Wouldn't ruin it. Absolutely. And and it doesn't make any difference, the quantity then, huh? Just dump it in and... This is what Mix I would say, up. and excuse, excuse me if I'm talking over it, a little delay here on the phone. But nonetheless, uh, I think whey is a protein, and you're absolutely right. When we take a look at uh, composting, let's separate kitchen waste. These are the banana peels and the potato peelings and the carrot peelings. Right. Kitchen waste has just about an ideal ratio of uh, carbon to nitrogen. We have right. to get this ratio right because the carbon supplies the energy, the uh, protein or the nitrogen uh, supplies the building blocks, the amino acids for the bacteria. So both of these components are important, and it's important we get that in about the right kind of a ratio. Uh, kitchen waste is just about perfect. There's plenty of moisture there. Kitchen waste will compost pretty much on its own. But when we take a look at the other materials that a lot of people compost, most of us, 
leaves, brown material, maybe uh, dead uh, uh, plant materials, the old tomato plants and so forth from the garden, anything that's brown and dry, and wood chips and sawdust, anything, any base product is very high in carbon. Uh, you can even compost newsprint. Again, that comes from paper, very high in carbon. So we need to balance that off with more nitrogen. So actually, your expired uh, protein way there is going to be high in nitrogen and will be a valuable component in the portion of your compost that is very brown, so the leaves and so forth. I wouldn't be... You could use it certainly in, with kitchen waste, but I wouldn't waste it for that. I think it has a value uh, than you would imagine. The only drawback, and I'm not worried about the flavorings or anything like that. They're all going to be edible and not a problem. The only drawback would be you're going to want to mix it in because if it compacts and that material can be very dense, then we can't get oxygen in there. We can't get the moisture in there. So as long as you mix it in, I'd mix it in with, uh, if you had an old pile of leaves or wood chips or anything like that, that's where I'd be using it. I'd be mixing it in, and it's actually uh, going to be a valuable component for you because oftentimes uh, we're deficient in nitrogen. We have to supply that from some type of either protein source or we have to supply it from some kind of a commercial synthetic nitrogen source like a uh, granular fertilizer. One way or another, we got to get nitrogen to that brown woody material. Does that help, Pat? Okay, and the other thing I was wondering about is uh, using baking soda and eggshells as a side dressing on the new uh, tomato plants, or is that a good thing? And what's the ratio for putting the uh, protein or the baking soda in there? Oh, these are good. These are good questions. We're really looking at bicarbonates. Uh, in the case of eggshells, you know, we're getting a little bit, let's separate them out. We're getting a little calcium from the, from the eggshells. Uh, and we're getting carbonates from the, uh, bicarbonate of soda, the baking soda. So we really, uh, we Just really dump don't. Dump her on? Dump her on or not? On no, I don't, I don't think we really, it's a small amount isn't going to hurt anything, but we really don't need either. Really? Okay. Don't need either. So I don't think there are a few items that uh, people think have uh, magical powers. If we had peat soil, then I'd say both would be valuable because peat doesn't contain the calcium and the carbonates that we really uh, want in a mineral soil. If you've got a backyard uh, mineral soil, your typical backyard garden soil, we really don't need either. You can spread a little on if you feel a little better, but we got to go back to just the basics, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And you get your nitrogen from your organic sources. That would be while we're at a manures. If you have those available, it would be a quality compost if you have that available. Or it would be a synthetic or a commercial fertilizer. And these are the things that are going to be important. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. The calciums and so forth are needed in limited amounts, but mainly in uh, peat-based soils. So if you had uh, potting soils, as an example, that hadn't been uh, artificially uh, the nutrient level boosted with some kind of a slow-release fertilizer, if that's not a component, then I'd say you could use both of these. But again, they're shy in nitrogen, so they're not going to be complete. They're not going to be curls. I had this question about gypsum the other day. Now, gypsum is, uh, again, a calcium, so calcium sulfate. And uh, I think some people have good luck with gypsum because they're using it on potting soil, which are peat-based soils, and that will help bring both calcium and sulfur into the soil, which is sometimes deficient, often deficient in peat-based soils. But it's something that you really don't need out in your, in your garden soil. So 
All depends on what's in the actual soil itself. Mm-hmm. And in your case, if you go outside in your garden soil, if you want to spread a little on, go ahead. It's not needed it, in small amounts. It's not going to be detrimental. Large amounts, uh, it could be on the carbonates. But, yeah. uh, so don't okay. spread too much of any of these, but not absolutely necessary. Pay attention to nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Okay? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks that for the call. Really a fascinating question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a lot of these home remedies, which in some cases, and I made this distinction between a potting soil that's just peat-based mm-hmm. and our mineral soils. Our mineral soils have got the sulfur, they've got the calcium, they've got the magnesium. The peat soils, the garden, the garden mix potting soils that you often buy, unless they've been supplemented, oftentimes they're deficient. So some of these products, mixing thoroughly, never in any high concentration, they can be more beneficial for a potting soil in a container than they would be out in your garden. All righty, let's uh, take another break, Bob. We'll be back. More of the Bob Olin Show on KDAL 935. All right, Bob, we're heading back to the phones again. Hi, who's this? Hey, my name is, hey, I'm Adam Fredrickson. I was wondering if I can plug our uh, beekeeping association called Head of the Lakes Beekeeping Association's uh, meeting is uh, second Thursday of the month over at the Bong Museum. Get together and learn about beekeeping, uh, highly involved with gardening. Oh, very much so. Anyway, it's been kind of a cool start this year for yeah. for bees, but they're they're building up, and we're starting to see some of the flowers coming on. All right, very good. Now, how many uh, members do you have, and are you looking for more? Oh, always looking for more. We got to be up around seventy or so, wow. seventy or eighty. Uh, we do a, a group purchase of a bunch of packaged bees every year that come out of uh, Texas and California, and we're okay. we're focused on sustainable beekeeping, trying to uh, get bees to overwinter in the area, and then uh, share um, the the reproduction of bees between each member. So, excellent. Hey, appreciate the update. Give us the time and date again. Uh, so it's second Thursday of the month. Uh, and it's at the Bong Memorial Center, the Richard I. Bong Center over in Spirit. All right. Thanks for the call. Appreciate and it. it. And it's at uh, 6 p.m. Very good. Thanks. 9.39 now at KDIL. Bob, you back? Not yet. We'll be back with more after this. All right. 9.41. Bob, are you back? I'm back with you. Yes. <laughs> Very good. I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, we lost you for a while again. Yeah, I do appreciate uh, the comment about Bee Growers Association. And yeah. Maybe this gentleman, if you call back, you can take his name and the contact information because I'm very happy to help uh, promote that organization. We've got some growers that are honey yeah. producers and uh, very interested there. So if he calls back again, take his name and some contact information for me. Sounds good. You know, pollinators, Dave, a great big deal right now, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is great. There's, a, there's an awareness out there, the importance of, uh, native bees as well as the honey producing uh, varieties but nonetheless uh, we're trying to do what we can in the landscape a lot of uh, folks are interested in pollinator gardens and that was one of the discussions I had last night with this community group that wants to do some great projects in their immediate community and uh, looking at the combination of both fruit and vegetable production and then uh pollinator-friendly plants. One thing that I've done this year is I've tried to incorporate some of the flowering shrubs. You know, we look at what we call herbaceous perennials. Uh, these would be the, uh, the flowering perennials that come from uh, not woody material, non-woody material that die back every year. Uh, our perennial flower gardens, uh, very typically, but we've kind of overlooked the importance of some of the flowering shrubs as well. It adds so much beauty background into our landscape, so I think that combination of flowering shrubs as well as, and they come out a little earlier before the herbaceous perennials come out. 
lots of interest there, both uh, for the beauty of your landscape. What's really neat about this is you can you can have a, a very a very beautiful perennial garden surrounded by beautiful flowering shrubs, particularly this time of year. They're spectacular, maybe with a flowering crab tree in the background, and all of this pollen's out there that uh, provides both nectar and pollen for our pollinating insects, our native bees, as well as our honey-producing bees. And then uh, they do their due diligence, get out there and help you pollinate your squash plants and your um, your cucumbers and any number of vegetable crops as well. So they actually fit together very nicely. So we've got this uh, real integrated approach to the landscape. Maybe not quite so much lawn, maybe cutting in some more uh, perennial gardens, some, some more fruit and vegetable gardens. It's real interesting, Dave. Uh, fruits and vegetables are very, very popular this year. Uh, we started off with a very, very slow May uh, for a lot of our greenhouse industry, a lot of the flowering materials, but certainly the vegetable materials uh, went very fast this year. I think people are very conscious of uh, cost of, of everything right now, but in particular food and energy, and they can do something by raising a few tomatoes. So there's been quite a bit of interest this year. But we need the pollinating insects to go along with uh, the production. It helps uh enhanced production with this uh, pollen transit that occurs to you. So I noticed the, uh, and uh, we're all in favor of uh, this shift. It's been kind of a mind <laughs> shift uh, that's happened relatively quickly. I never thought I'd see a no-mo May in Superior, let alone a no-mo May down in this rather exclusive suburb of the Twin Cities called Edina. And uh, they went no-mo May as well. And I'm not sure how that's working out, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, maybe you could tell us, did it work out for you, Dave? Over well, I made it till the very end of May before I had to mow, or it would have been uh, clogging up my mower, but yeah, most you of May went by without rather mowing. Than mowing. <laughs> that's right. I noticed <laughs> the first batch of dandelions are dying back now, so uh, we're, we've got plenty of uh, uh, flowers on the apple tree, though, so that should help uh, the bees a bit. Oh, absolutely. Now, once again, you take a look at... Uh, I want people to just spend a little time and they say, stop and smell the roses. We've got kind of a very fast-paced uh, society right now, instant <laughs> communication, a lot of information, misinformation, all kinds of stuff flying around. But uh, you got to spend a little time, stop, smell the roses, stop and smell the uh, the flowering crabs right now, right. as well as the edible apples. Is your, you've got a Harrelson, is your Harrelson uh, yep. blooming at this point? Yes, they are. They're, uh, they were particularly strong late last week and are dying back a little bit now, but they were great last week. Yeah, they were great, and uh, we're going to see the same thing. There's mm-hmm. this transition. It's about, a, about a, at the most, a two-week period that we've got some of these beautiful right. flowering uh, trees and shrubs in our landscape, so you really have to enjoy them. But in that time, we get this pollen transfer that occurs, and without pollen transfer, you're not going to get that fruit production a little later in the year. Isn't it amazing how fast the day get longer and how fast everything moves <laughs> along this time of year? Seems like we sat uh, under a snowbank for uh, a number of months. I hate to say it, it was probably seven, seven and a half months this year, and then all of a sudden it breaks free and then it moves very, very fast, Dave. So we really have to kind of appreciate things right now. Yeah, you got to, uh, when you take a walk down the street, you can smell those flowering crabs as you go along. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, the flowering crabs, you know, we've had so many new introductions over the last several years. You know, back, I had that question, what are your favorites? Well, I've got some. If we were zone, solid zone 4, zone 4B, zone 5, warmer conditions, I, I'd have a whole bunch that I'd love. But I, I go back to our the oldies but the goodies, Dave. Uh, we've got some. I'll give you three. There's the radiant crab, and that comes a little later. That's a deep red 
flowering crab. Right. Uh, that one's been around. Actually, all of these have been around. That was an introduction to the University of Minnesota in the 40s. And uh, we've got some that were probably planted in the 50s, and they're still here today. So they, they can be very, very long-lived. But the radiant, deep, deep red. Uh, red Splendor is a little lighter pink that comes a little earlier. That one's been around since the 50s as well. And no drift, the beautiful white crab. So these are ornamental crabs, right. uh, not really made for their or selected for their fruit production. We've got some crabs that are very good for fruit production. Centennial and chestnuts stand out in my mind, so don't shy away from some of the uh, the fruiting crabs as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, but uh, these are the ornamentals, and those big three, Snowdrift, uh, Red Splendor, and Radiant, are my favorites, and uh, they're very, very hardy. They're not quite as disease-resistant. Some years we get a little problem with scab, and it can be so bad that it'll actually drop some of the leaves, or in many, in some cases, all of the leaves. That wasn't a problem this year, but they survived that very well because I can look at our landscape and I know we've got crabs out there that've been in the landscape for 50 years. So first and foremost, they got to be good and winter hardy. Some of the newer introductions have interesting fruit, interesting leaf colors. There's a lot of burgundy leaf colored varieties out there that are very fascinating, but most of those are zone four. So if you're down along the lake or Superior, or down along the St. Louis River Valley there where you feel confident that you're Zone 4. And most of the rest of us in the listing area have to stick with Zone 3. So first and foremost, before you look for all the additional colors and all the novelty aspects of these newer introductions, make sure that it's going to make it through multiple winters because uh, even though things may be warming a bit, we still have a very cold climate, can have some very severe winters. So those three, Red Splendor and Snowdrift, uh, will be here for the next 50 years, Dave. All right, Bob, back to the phones we go. Hi, who is this? Hi, this is Tiny. Tiny, Hello, go ahead. Tiny. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, I, was wondering about gro- I was wondering about growing garlic in pots, like big pots, and how crowded yeah. I can make them. Oh, that is a good question. First off, uh, most of our garlic we like to get established in fall, and um, are you thinking of planting this spring or at this time? I, I don't know enough about it, so we're going to start from ground zero because garlic can actually be started uh, from bulbs in the spring of the year. You just don't get large enough um, uh, bulbs at the end of the year. So generally, let me give you the routine. Generally, we're going to be planting in the fall, about August, about October 15th or so. We want them down on the ground. We don't want to go too early. We want just the roots to get established. We don't want the shoot to emerge. And then we get them mulched in because the winter protection is going to be essential for garlic. And that's the problem with with growing them in containers. Uh, but we're going to start in the fall, whether we put them in the ground or whether we try them in containers. If you're going to put them in containers, you're going to have to insulate that with straw or hay or something to the outside because we'll get cold penetration that will actually kill uh, that clove, so it begins to emerge, the root system begins to form, and then um, if we have very cold penetration, it will kill that, it won't make it through the spring. So they can be tender, some of these varieties, you're going to have to mulch if you're going to do them in containers. Now your other option would be to plant them in early in the spring, and we're getting a little late now, but if you want to give it a try, why not? Uh, you can put them up in containers, and maybe in uh, about mid-April, something like that, you can take the cloves. Once again, a, a garlic has a bulb, and then we strip off the cloves, so we break cloves apart. One clove gives you one one plant. 
So those could be planted uh, very early in the spring in containers. You wouldn't have to worry about the cold penetration. But anytime you start in the spring, uh, the plant gets off to kind of slower start. So you're not going to get uh, as much bulb formation as you'd like if you'd started it in the fall. It just needs more growing time. So uh, give it a try. I'm going to say, uh, you know, it depends certainly on the size of the, size of the container. You want to spread them about three, four inches, I would say, at a, uh, at a minimum. So if you've got an 8, 10-inch uh, pot, you could probably put three or four cloves in there and let them grow and let them emerge. They're still going to be fine. You're just going to going to have smaller cloves. Probably they they won't last quite as long for you. So you'd want to consume them and use them uh, in cooking just that first season, rather than trying to hold them through the winter. Okay. Have a long explanation to help a bit for you. <laughs> yeah, it's going to help a lot. All right. I do have some Great. cloves, a, a clove sitting on my counter that's actually growing right now. <laughs> oh yeah, let's get them in now. If they're growing right now. Uh, you want to be a little careful. We're warmer, but I would I'd, I'd leave the uh, the emerging sprout, the green portion above the soil surface, and the rest of it you can put down in the ground in, in your container. I'd go ahead. I'd plant them up and uh, let them grow out. Get them with containers. If it gets hot, we got to make sure it gets adequate water that it doesn't dry down. So sometimes that can mean watering once a day. But let them grow out, and you're certainly going to have some uh, some garlic for your your use uh, a little later in the season. As a matter of fact, uh, some of these commercial varieties, if these were bought in the store, many of those are not uh, hardy during the winter, but certainly we could start them early in this technique and, and be satisfied with some production of the bulb later in the year, and we don't have to worry about the hardiness issues. So anything from the store, a lot of that comes in from California, even China, and uh, they're not particularly hardy here. So we have to be careful about our variety selection if we're going to put them out in the garden, if you wanted to try this technique where you start them very early in the year where we don't have to worry about winter hardiness, then suddenly uh, they'll grow out for you and you can uh, you can eat them uh, later in the year in the fall. You can actually harvest and consume them and not try to overwinter them. Very good. So there's another technique. Okay. So thank you for that call. That's, that's an yeah. interesting proposition there. And if they're not good enough to eat, string them around your neck. Keep the vampires away all winter. That'd be good, yeah. Right. We can keep some of those nasty vampires off us. We'll be off right back. Trip. More of the Bob Olin Show coming up. Once again, Bob Olin wrapping up uh, the show this morning. Bob, uh, they're talking about the Rhubarb Festival. I imagine the rhubarb is growing good about now, too. Spectacular at this point. Great, great rhubarb year. <laughs> so the festivals are going to be fun, and they offer a good cause, yeah. of course. Uh, there is a crop. I take a look at some of our spring crops that are really mm-hmm. spectacular in there. Rhubarb would certainly be one of them. And you know what? Uh, it's tart. It's amazing what a little sugar will do, huh, Dave? Yeah, put enough sugar, you can eat pretty much anything. <laughs> I think that the, uh, the rhubarb is a favorite. Rhubarb pies are a favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead and harvest those. Now we're going to we get this window of opportunity. We talked about the flowering crabs and the apple blossoms only being here for a short time. The rhubarb crops the same way. We can harvest heavily. Right now, this time of year, but then when we get to about the Fourth of July, I use that as kind of a uh, kind of a breakoff point. We don't want to harvest after that. Uh, People think that they plant is poisonous. The the stalks themselves are never poisonous. The leaves are always they contain oxalic acid, so you never want to uh, consume the leaves. That proves so much plant material. And I, there's always an exception. The only situation where the um, the stalks can contain some of this oxalic acid, which is a mild toxin 
would be if we had a heavy frost late in the year and the plant actually wilts. So if the plant doesn't wilt by a light frost, go ahead. You never have to worry about eating the stalks. If the plant's actually wilted, take those stalks down and throw discard them. And this would be a late spring frost, a hard spring frost. And we've had that over the last couple of years this actually occurred, not this season. That'd be the only situation where the stalk is ever uh, poisonous. If that happens and the plant wilts, just cut the stalks off, let them regrow. It occurs early in the year. And then the next stalks are not going to have a problem. If there's no wilting, don't worry about it. Uh, you're going to be just fine. But we're going to consume these. Uh, we're going to use them during the month of June. Sauces and uh, pies and everything at that rhubarb <laughs> festival would taste great. And uh, most of us are pretty big fans. This is actually considered a weed plant as you get farther north. I saw rhubarb in Alaska. I couldn't believe they were about uh, <laughs> literally three, four feet in height. Enormous plants. And they do well the farther north you go. They don't do so well as you move farther south. So actually... They're considered a delicacy when you get down in the Carolinas and other oh. places where people try to grow them. So I guess uh, it's a plant that's very easy to grow, good drainage, full sun, fertility in the spring of the year. With all this rain, a little additional nitrogen, the only time we're going to be fertilizing. But they're, they're minimal care. The deer don't like them, except, again, there's always the exception, isn't there, Dave? <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> just as they're emerging from the... From the uh, ground, I've uh, had them nipped off by those critters at that point. When they, again, I mentioned this toxin, oxalic acid isn't present, so they will nip those off occasionally early in the year. But once again, the plant comes back, so they're they're certainly not a problem. And uh, take seed stalks off, uh, harvest freely right now, and then let them regrow. Uh, stop about early July and let that plant grow out so it can reestablish. Bigger in the root for, for next year's crop. Day. All right, Bob, we got to wrap it up. See you next Tuesday. And my pleasure. Thanks for all the questions from folks. The Bob Olin Show has been brought to you by Dan's Garden Center. Located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. And by WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig.